You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. We were landed at Pittsburgh Landing, 10 miles above Savannah. This was Monday morning, the second day of the fight. We marched off the boat, took breakfast, if breakfast we may call it, and then we piled up our blankets, for we had left knapsacks, overcoats, everything but blankets, in the wagon. We filled our haversacks and our canteens and started out to fight. We had only gone a short distance when the bullets could be heard whizzing over our heads. The next thing, we formed a line of battle and marched forward, passing over the dead. Nearly every few yards a body was stretched out. For some time the battle raged furiously, and I tell you now, I commenced to think we were going to get thrashed. But the scale turned at last, and the rebels commenced to give ground. They would retreat a short distance, and then rally and fight like devils. There is no use to talk about their being cowardly, for they will fight, and fight well. Sergeant Michael S. Bright, 77th Pennsylvania, Kirk's Brigade. The 77th was the only unit from Pennsylvania to see action at Shiloh. At daylight, I fell in with my company, but there were only about 50 of the Dixies present. Almost immediately after, the symptoms of coming battle were manifest. Regiments were hurried into line, but even to my inexperienced eyes, the troops were in ill condition for repeating the efforts of Sunday. However, in a brief time, in consequence of our pickets being driven in on us, we were moved forward in skirmishing order. In short time, we met our opponents in the same formation as ourselves, and advancing most resolutely. We threw ourselves behind such trees as were near us, fired, loaded, and darted forward to another shelter. Presently, I found myself in an open, grassy space with no convenient tree or stump near, but seeing a shallow hollow some twenty paces ahead, I made a dash for it and plied my musket with haste. I became so absorbed with some blue figures in front of me that I did not pay sufficient heed to my companion greys. I assumed the greys were keeping their position, and I never once thought of retreat. However, as the blues were coming uncomfortably near, I rose from my hollow, but to my speechless amazement I found myself a solitary grey in a line of blue skirmishers. My companions had retreated. The next voice I heard was, Down with that gun, Secesh, or I'll drill a hole through you. Drop it, quick. Private Henry M. Stanley, 6th Arkansas, Heinrich's Brigade. Welcome to the 124th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. 
As y'all recall, we ended the last show by talking about PGT Beauregard's decision on Sunday evening to call off the Confederate attacks on the final Union defensive line, and we also looked at Ulysses S. Grant's decision to fight it out there on the west bank of the river come Monday morning. In fact, as we saw, Grant planned to launch a counterattack on Monday morning and, as he put it, whip the Confederates and win the battle. As we said last time, after the fighting on Sunday had come to an end, the wet, gloomy night of April 6th to 7th was a miserable one for the men of the opposing armies congregated around Pittsburgh Landing, and especially terrible, of course, for the thousands of wounded. During the night, Grant made preparations for taking the offensive the next morning, and throughout the hours of darkness and rain, fresh troops filed into his lines. Lew Wallace's division finally arrived shortly after nightfall and took up a position on the right end of the Union line. In the darkened woods, Grant's staff officers were unable to locate Wallace to give him his orders. It was about daybreak when Grant himself found the 3rd Division and its commander. Wallace had already deployed his division, and Grant ordered him to advance against the enemy. Units from Buell's Army of the Ohio had crossed the river on steamboats all through the night and took up positions in the darkened woods beyond Pittsburgh Landing. In the pitch black, they sometimes stumbled against trees or over the bodies of sleeping soldiers of Grant's Army of the Tennessee. Before dawn, Bull Nelson's entire division was deployed on the far left, nearest the river. On Nelson's right, the divisions of Thomas L. Crittenden and Alexander McCook moved into line as they arrived on the battlefield. Unlike Lew Wallace's veteran division, Buell's troops would be going into their first major battle on Monday morning. Between Nelson's fresh division on the left and Wallace's on the right, Hurlbut's, McClernand's, and Sherman's took their places in the center of the Union line. Those three divisions were still essentially intact, although battered, numbering on average perhaps half as many men as they had counted on Sunday morning. The remnants of Prentice's and W.H.L. Wallace's shattered formations were deprived of leadership, with Wallace fallen and Prentice captured, though some solitary soldiers or individual units fought in the ranks of the other three divisions on Monday. The Union line advanced at sunrise. On the right, Lew Wallace's division led off first. It encountered only slight opposition from Confederate pickets as it advanced across the ravine of Tillman's Branch. As it pressed forward onto the high ground beyond, fighting flared up in earnest. Similarly, a few minutes later, Bull Nelson's division led off the Federal advance on the left and likewise had easy going until it had nearly reached the Peach Orchard and the area of the Hornet's Nest, where it also became heavily engaged. Between Wallace's and Nelson's divisions, the rest of the Union Army now began to advance southward too and had soon joined the fight. As you guys know from the last episode, on Beauregard's order the night before, most of the Confederate army had pulled back to a line roughly corresponding with the captured Federal divisional encampments, and that's where the advancing Yankees found the rebels on Monday morning. Since there was, in some cases, quite a ways for the Union forces to advance to contact with the enemy, really it was nearly mid-morning before heavy fighting had broken out all along the line. 
Almost to a man, rebel officers from PGT Beauregard on down were caught completely by surprise by the Union counterattack. Beauregard's halt order the previous evening had been based on the assumption that Grant's army was so badly beaten that he would be at the Confederates' mercy on Monday. But now here were the Yankees, up early in the morning, and advancing in force. Apparently Beauregard didn't realize that Buell's troops had been added to Grant's army, but as the blue-clad ranks rolled forward on Monday morning, the Confederate commander certainly realized very quickly that he was facing a much stronger foe than he had expected to confront on the second day of the battle. In attempting to deal with the unexpected Federal advance, there wasn't much chance on Monday for Confederate commanders to display much tactical finesse. Besides providing inspirational leadership to the units under their direct command, there wasn't much the rebel officers could do against the flood tide of fresh Union troops. The preceding day's fighting in the rough terrain of woods, thickets, and ravines that covered the battlefield, added on top of the initial faulty deployment of the Southern Army, had resulted in the almost complete disorganization of the rebels come Monday morning. When the Federals counterattacked, there was scarcely a brigade in the Confederate Army, much less a division that was still functioning as a coherent formation. Nearly every Confederate general officer was directing an ad hoc command on Monday morning. In any case, once the Union assault started to roll forward, there was little for the rebels to do but try to hang on to the ground they had taken at such heavy cost the day before. The Confederates, although taken by surprise by the Union counterattack, fought back hard, surprisingly hard, bearing in mind their disorganization and considering their exertions of the day before. But on Monday, the Federals had the advantages both of numbers and organization, and they had seized the initiative. The blue-clad soldiers steadily pushed back the rebels across the previous day's battlefield. Grant's force had been reinforced by four fresh divisions, numbering about 27,000 men, and with that kind of infusion of fresh troops, the outcome of the fighting on Monday was never really in much doubt. The Confederates made several local counterattacks, occasionally pushing back some of the attackers a few hundred yards, but then the Federals rallied and pressed forward again. Colonel James Veach, who had commanded a brigade in Sherman's division the day before, said of the fighting on Monday, quote, There were sudden bursts of battle as furious and intense as any that occurred on the first day, but they were less frequent and of short duration. End quote. By noon, the fighting was near the line of the Hamburg Purdy Road, where Sherman had briefly rallied his division alongside McClernand's the day before. This time, however, Sherman was on the offensive in this sector, driving the rebels before him. Near the crossroads of the Hamburg, Purdy, and Corinth roads, Braxton Bragg rallied the Confederate troops to make a determined stand, and the combat became just as intense and ferocious as it had been the day before. A shallow pond, called Water Oaked Pond, lay in the middle of the area of the heaviest fighting here, and the battle raged around it and across it as well as in the nearby thickets. In this sector, Sherman's line of advance was converging with that of McCook's division of the Army of the Ohio, and brigades from both organizations attempted to break the stubborn rebel defense near the pond. The Confederates counterattacked, and the battle line swayed back and forth. 
Sherman later reported that the fighting here included, quote, the severest musketry fire I ever heard, end quote. Finally, the Federals succeeded in driving the Confederates back. Beauregard personally helped his officers rally the defenders as they streamed to the rear, but though he prevented a complete collapse, he couldn't prevent resumption of the steady Union advance. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. The heart-rending scene at the hospital is one I would like to forget. Piles of dead soldiers were all around, and lying in rows were others who were dying. Doctors and their assistants were moving among the wounded, examining and aiding those who were not beyond help. The screams from the operating table resounded through the woods, for the surgeons were taking off arms and legs of a succession of men carried to them. Teams drawing ambulances were being urged to hasten, hauling the wounded from the field and back to a safer place. Other wagons were collecting and bringing in more wounded. They were being unloaded like so many butchered hogs, and the wagon beds were streaming blood. Once unloaded, the wagons were off to the front again to collect more unfortunates. Many were dead when unloaded. Others died soon afterward. Lieutenant William C. Thompson, 6th Mississippi, Claiborne's Brigade. During the Battle of Sunday, the woods were fired, and when we regained our outer camps Monday, found at one point a pile of corn containing several hundred bushels gathered with a hussan. Many wounded soldiers crawled to this pile of corn, seeking more comfortable conditions, and when the fire swept through the woods and over the corn, they could not get away and were burned to death. At another place Monday afternoon, I found a bright young boy, 
confederate, lying badly wounded on a cot in a tent. Facing him on another cot alongside his own sat a dead rebel with wide staring eyes, and underneath the cot occupied by the boy was the body of a Union soldier. By dropping his left hand, the boy could touch this body, and by moving his right hand a trifle, he could touch the other. He said, I was badly wounded yesterday, but managed to get into this abandoned tent and climbed up on this cot. Soon after, this man on the other cot crawled in, and just before dark, this soldier lying under my cot. They were both hurt worse than I was, but we talked to each other as much as we could for encouragement. Then along in the night, this man on the cot talked very low and weak, and after a while said he knew he was going to die and bid us goodbye. I didn't hear anything after that from the man lying under my cot, and it was awful still from that till morning. When daylight came, I found that they were both dead, and I have laid here all day, hoping someone would come and help me. Lieutenant John T. Bell, 2nd Iowa, Tuttle's Brigade Ulysses S. Grant was on horseback and well up to the front during Monday's fighting. He directed individual regiments into battle and observed the results from a position just behind the firing line and within range of the enemy's bullets and shells. There was little communication between Grant and Buell, either before the start of the fighting on Monday or during the Federal counterattack that day. Of course, since Grant ranked Buell, the latter's army was now also under his command, but Grant doesn't seem to have been willing to press that point very hard on April 7th. Buell's attitude toward Grant was unfriendly, even contemptuous, and had been at least since Grant had shown him up by getting to Nashville before him back in February. In any event, at Shiloh, Grant wasn't naive enough to think that he would necessarily receive cordial cooperation or more than minimal obedience from Buell or his subordinate officers. It was shortly after rallying the Confederate troops that had fallen back from the fight around McClernand's camps and Water Oaks Pond that Beauregard recognized a decline in the morale of the men. The rebels were beginning to show signs of not just fatigue, but discouragement, after a day and a half of fierce fighting, concluding with a morning of almost unbroken retreat in front of an enemy they had believed they had beaten. By now, Beauregard was also in no doubt that Grant's force had been heavily reinforced by elements of Buell's army. Beauregard's only remaining hope throughout Monday morning had been the hoped-for arrival of Earl Van Dorn and his column of 20,000 troops from the Trans-Mississippi, who had been ordered east by Albert Sidney Johnston some weeks before and were known to be on their way. That morning, however, a message arrived from Corinth informing Beauregard that Van Dorn was still some distance away. With that news and the continued pressure from the resurgent Federals, it was clear to Beauregard that the Army had little realistic chance of maintaining their position near Pittsburgh Landing. About 1 p.m., Beauregard began making preparations for a retreat back to Corinth. Just a short time later, his chief of staff, Thomas Jordan, approached him. Jordan was becoming concerned that if Beauregard waited much longer to order the withdrawal, the Southern Army's retreat would become a rout. To Beauregard, Jordan said, quote, General, do you not think our troops are very much in the condition of a lump of sugar thoroughly soaked with water, 
preserving its original shape, though ready to dissolve? Would it not be judicious to get away with what we have? Beauregard replied quietly that he intended to withdraw soon, and not long afterward, at around 2 p.m., he gave the orders, and the Confederate army began to disengage and withdraw, though it took several hours for all of the units to clear the battlefield. During that time, Grant found two regiments of Hurlbut's division, the 14th and 15th Illinois, and he got them into position and led them forward, riding in front of them, both to make sure they went where he wanted them to, and to see they didn't waste their ammunition on ineffective long-range fire. As they approached the rebels, though, Grant turned aside and directed the regiment's colonels to lead their troops forward in the charge. Whether or not at that time Grant knew what had happened to Albert Sidney Johnston the day before, the Union commander didn't make the same mistake. The charge was a limited success, but the Confederates on that part of the battlefield accelerated their retreat, and the Illinois regiments began to pursue, but Buell happened along and stopped them. He may not have realized that their movement was by Grant's order, or he may not have cared. In the coming days, Buell would show himself decidedly uncooperative. At any rate, by sunset, the rebels were gone, and the Battle of Shiloh was over. Grant actually ordered little in the way of pursuit after it became clear the Confederates were indeed retreating. Grant had been close enough to defeat on April 6th. On the 7th, he had turned that close call into a major victory. He wasn't inclined to gamble it again that night, or on the 8th, by pressing the defeated rebel army too closely. Besides, Grant was in a ticklish position with regard to Henry Halleck, since he had been under strict orders from Halleck not to bring on an engagement, but Grant had just fought the largest battle in American history. Pursuit of the rebels might bring more fighting, more casualties, and more wrath from a displeased Halleck. When everything was said and done, the combined casualties at Shiloh amounted to 23,741, which were more, as historians like to point out, in a single battle than in all of America's previous wars combined, the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War. The Butcher's Bill included 1,754 Union dead, 8,408 wounded, and 2,885 missing, for a total of 13,047. Confederate losses were 1,723 killed, 8,012 wounded, and 959 missing, for a total of 10,694. Actual, true Confederate losses were almost certainly much higher than that, though, probably running close to 12,000 but trying to accurately account for Southern losses at Shiloh is an iffy business due to poor Confederate record-keeping. At any rate, nothing like such a bloodletting had ever happened before in the Western Hemisphere. In April 1862, the sheer magnitude of the butchery at Shiloh staggered the American public's imagination. The casualties at Shiloh were fully twice those than all those in the earlier battles of the Civil War. The northern public's initial elation at a great Union victory in the West soon turned to shock and then to outrage as the numbers came in. The South had to deal not only with the mind-numbing casualty lists, but also with the strategic consequences of a battlefield disaster. 
For two days along the banks of the Tennessee River, a hundred thousand American boys had went at each other with unprecedented savagery, and when it was over, what was left of the Southern Army marched back where it had come from, and what was left of the Union Army still held the field. The Yankee Army had reached the Deep South, and though it got whipped from time to time, it was never expelled. Things were now in a bad condition, our men repulsed at all points and badly demoralized, and the enemy with very heavy reinforcements driving us. In the evening it set to rain, and the battle once more ceased at dark. Thousands of stragglers were seen in every direction, which were turned back, and our army formed a line of battle under Breckenridge to protect our retreat. Batteries, wagons, and men were moving all night for Corinth, We went two mile to the rear and stayed all night to collect our men and be ready. It rained all night, and the troops suffered very much, especially the wounded. Our loss today was three killed, twelve wounded, and two captured prisoners, also sixty-eight horses and four cannon and all. Tuesday, April 8, 1862, a very wet morning, mud knee-deep and still raining, troops still moving to the rear. We started with our two cannon and wagons at one this afternoon, traveled very slow. Heard no firing in our rear. We had an awful time getting to Corinth, had to lift the wagons out of the mud several times. We, however, got into our old camp at dark, all very tired and worn out, and most of us sick. Private John E. McGee, Stanford's Mississippi Battery, A.P. Stewart's Brigade. A few Sibley tents, torn and riddled by shot and shell, were all we had left. I lost my shirts, blankets, letters from home, my testament, and a picture of the girl I left behind me. I was more indignant over the loss of my girl's picture than I was over the other articles. On Tuesday, I was detailed with others to bury the dead lying within our camp and to a distance of 200 yards. I had charge of digging the grave. If a trench over sixty feet long and four feet deep can be called a grave. The weather was hot, and most of the dead had been killed early Sunday morning, and dissolution had already commenced. The soldiers gathered the bodies up and placed them in wagons, hauling them near to the trench and piling them up like cordwood. We were furnished with plenty of whiskey, and the boys believed that it would have been impossible to have performed the job without it. When the grave was ready, we placed the bodies therein, too deep, all to lie till Gabriel's trumpet shall sound. All the monument reared to those brave men was a board, nailed to a tree at the head of the trench, upon which I cut with my knife the words, One hundred and twenty-five rebels. We buried our Union boys in a separate trench, and on another board were these words, Thirty-five Union. Many of our men had been taken away and buried separately by their comrades. It was night when we finished the task. Some of the squad drunk with liquor, but they could not be blamed, for it was a hard job. The next day we burned the horses and mules. Corporal Wilbur F. Crummer, 45th Illinois, Marsh's Brigade. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Shiloh, Conquer or Perish by Timothy B. Smith. 
This is a fairly recent addition to the studies that have been devoted to Shiloh. Uh, it came out just last year, and everyone couldn't wait for it to come out since it promised to devote more attention to the second day of the battle than any previous book. And Shiloh, Conquer, or Perish delivered on that promise. There's really nothing new here about the background of the campaign or about the first day of the fighting, but when it comes to the account of what all happened on Monday, that's where Smith's book really shines, and it's the reason you want to have it in your Civil War library. Smith's study of the action on the second day of the battle will be the definitive account of what happened on Monday, April 7th for a very, very long time. Don't forget, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to give a shout out to several new members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Kim, Glenn, and Stephen. We're glad to have them on board. And then we want to thank Robert H. from Maine and Rick from Conley's Horse Photos in Indiana for their donations this past week. Thanks, guys. One thing uh, we made a note that we wanted to mention is that we seem to be getting more and more messages recently from people who are discovering the podcast, but then are having trouble downloading all the back episodes from iTunes. And really, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to get all the episodes on iTunes, except that weird stuff is just continually happening with iTunes. Uh, anyway, if there are episodes that, for whatever reason, you haven't been able to get from there, you can always go to the website and find each and every episode there, since with each show's post, there's a Listen To link. We also wanted to mention that the last few months, for the first time, we've had over 100,000 downloads of the podcast each month, which is exciting. And in fact, we are fast closing in on 2 million total downloads. Which is very exciting. Which is very exciting uh, and a bit unnerving if we allow ourselves to think about it as the two of us record the podcast here in our kitchen. So we won't think about it too much. We'll simply say thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next week, we'll wrap up our discussion of Shiloh by taking stock of what exactly happened there, and we'll also look at what happened in the aftermath of the battle. So that'll be next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.